drink until you die. Whiskey time. What is what is going on? Is, is this Alejandro Colini's podcast about the aesthetic theory of everything, or is this some sort of ne'er do well uh, brigade? Well, I gotta admit something to you guys. This is John Galt, the band. That's right, the band named after the guy. Um, welcome to an aesthetic theory of Alejandro Colini. Uh, I'm going to, you know what, hang on one second. That's, you've had your day, John Galt. So this is, that was John Galt's Drink Until You Die from their classic album, Keep Drinking, from 2019. Let me look a little bit into this band. Can I get an about section? Oh, come on, YouTube music. What's your problem? Well, you got to be like this all the time. YouTube music and I are having a real hot and cold relationship. Um... So from what I can see about John Galt, first of all, there's an umlaut over the A, so maybe they're like John Galt. Oh man, I'm dumb. Um, but I'm. What I mean honestly is that I have a strong suspicion they're Swedish uh, uh, or or Norwegian or something. Um, both of their albums are themed around drinking. Served ho- John Galt served hot. The album cover for that is a woman's breasts, like a headless woman, and she's wearing like a jean jacket, but you see a lot of her cleavage, and she's in the background, and in the foreground are four very colorful shots. And then the other one is John Galt still drinking, uh, and it looks like some sort of convoluted, why am I explaining this to you? Some sort of convoluted drinking hat, where two-fifths of Jack Daniels have been substituted for cans of beer in the traditional drinking hat. See, I assumed... Oh, my lord. All right, everything's okay. I assumed that I could find a John Galt band and that they would be, like, an objectivist band, you know, and all their songs would be like, do it for yourself, or, or like, um, selfishness shouldn't be a dirty word. Um... So, but I guess I found this hard, hard partying John Galt, the, these Swedish partiers. Oh my, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, this is a strange, strange beginning to my Atlas Shrugged episode of an aesthetic theory of Alejandro Colini. I'm Alejandro Colini. I don't know how many times I've said that already. Uh, this is my podcast where I develop an aesthetic theory of everything. And this week we're going to be talking about Ayn Rand's super novel, Atlas Shrugged. I... Oh my god. I feel, first, well, I feel like I need to give a little caveat before I go on. Because the next thing I was going to say was, I love Atlas Shrugged. And I want to be clear that, like, I love Atlas Shrugged in the same way that I love the YouTube video where a man tries to chug a bottle of Patron. Joe Breezy, that's what it's called. I would actually recommend that you guys Google this or YouTube it. Joe Breezy Patron Chug. It's a man, he tries to chug Patron, and he immediately starts vomiting, but he can't stop trying, so he's pouring the Patron into his mouth and then vomiting it back onto the bottle as he holds it, and then he just starts vomiting all over the ground, and it is a disgusting, horrific experience, and I love that video, and I love Atlas Shrugged. Um, (laughs) Is there any particular... Yeah, no, you know what it was? I heard people on Twitter talking about Atlas Shrugged again, and I think Atlas Shrugged... It's just one of those things that I think gets invoked a lot, and I'll, we, or or should I say, you fucking 
you know, Philistines. <laughs> asshole, asshole. Uh, I'm an asshole. Um, you know, it gets talked a lot. Uh, it gets sort of like talked about as a like, oh, a book that's just like so, so atrocious and it's so dumb and anyone who likes it is dumb. But like, I don't think most of you guys have read it and you can have an opinion on things if you haven't consumed them. I believe that firmly. I don't, I'm not one of those people who's like, how do you, how do you even say what you feel about it if you haven't read it? It's 1100, you know, pages long. You don't have to read it to know how you feel about it. You can know about the content of it. But I just think that people don't know the content of it. I think that people don't really know that this book has an airplane chase through the mountains. Like, this is... It's a it's when people say that Atlas Shrugged is a bad book, it gives me a little bit of ugh, I, ee, I I screech on the brakes a little bit. <laughs> Why did I do that? All right, cool. I'm feeling like that today. Ee, um, because yes, Atlas Shrugged is a bad book via many metrics. It is uh, evil. Like it's an evil. It's like it, its core is rotten, which I'll talk about. I'm not just going to say that and then not elaborate but um it's definitely an evil book it is extremely repetitive and overwritten and it makes its point in the first 50 pages of the novel and there's 950 pages there's just a thousand pages left or whatever and but but it is a coherent thousand page novel uh it contains many characters uh, the storylines pass from one place to another. You know, things make sense within the world that is created. That world itself is completely absurd and has no real basis in reality. But um, the the book doesn't break its own rules necessarily. Um, and at the end of the book, you've read a thousand pages of book and a lot of stuff has happened. And it has all told one story that is now kind of over. And in my view, maybe this is just as a, like, I hate to, I hate to say as a writer, I'm sorry, but like, if you write a coherent thousand page novel, doesn't matter how bad it is. That's not a bad book. That book is a, like, Alice Shrugged is a successful book because it is a thousand pages long and it's basically readable. Um, we, when we imagine an evil work, I think it's hard for us to, oh God, and this reminds me so much. I almost wish, I almost, uh there's, I'll, I'll tell you this. During the lost episodes of Toxic Podcast a few months ago, there is a Song of the South episode of Toxic Podcast that did not get posted because uh, it just was too, like, not sad, but, uh, you know, I, I, I just got... I just got not confident about the idea that it was worth it for me to post an hour of myself talking about Song of the South. But one thing that I uh, was was thinking about a lot then and I'm thinking about a lot now is that when you imagine an evil text, you really only imagine it kind of being evil. You can't really, you know, or this is me. I shouldn't speak for others. But like, you know, I didn't know what Atlas Shrugged would be like. I read it. um, out of sort of morbid curiosity. I wanted to have read it. I wanted to have that evil book in my head and know. And when people brought up, oh, Atlas Shrugged sucks, I wanted to be able to go, I know it sucks because I read the whole fucking thing. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you something, friends. A lot of the reading <laughs> uh, you guys might laugh at this, but uh, I certainly will. A lot of the reading that I did in high school and college to make myself cool didn't work out at all like that's not how the world works people aren't like oh my oh my god you're a voracious reader 
tell me about it. Like, you know, no one wants to hear about what you're reading. I know that I'm not even sure how this episode is going to be received by my droves of fans, you know, um, but I am so, so excited about reading. And sometimes I have these experiences with books that are, that I do just like, oh, my God, I want to talk about this for an hour. I talked about Scarlet Letter. I don't know. I think I could have done better. I, I think that this is a lot more ripe of a text because we all have uh, now like political and like cultural associations with this book. And I'm just well, let me just. OK, because I'm so excited. I'm so excited to tell you what this book is about. I'm so excited. So I'm going to. This is the plot of Atlas Shrugged. We're going to just do this first. I think this works for us. So the lead character of the book is a woman named Dagny Taggart, who is kind of by default the leader and like CEO of her deceased father's uh, deteriorating railway line she's got a brother who's weak who's a collectivist who's a schemer um but she's strong she's responsible she's powerful and she is trying to uh basically resuscitate her railway despite the fact that the world is becoming increasingly like populated by essentially weak and uh, sniveling people who want to collectivize the idea of responsibility to diffuse their uh, level of blame. This is a big thing in the book. Um, everyone is constantly afraid of getting blamed and taking responsibility, all of the weak people. And I guess at this point I should just say two things. First of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divert a little bit just to explain to you the dichotomy of the book. If we can, if, oh, no, no one shot me with a dart. All right, I said dichotomy successfully. Um... But I also just need to say, I'm about to say a lot of things as though they are fact, and I kind of, I want you to understand, I'm trying to summarize the book within world on its own terms. This is not my beliefs. Uh, this is not how I feel. Um, but so, Atlas Shrugged, it's really a black and white book. And that, I think, is to its detriment as a book, because this is not how real people, I mean... You can do this with real people. You can break them down into good and bad, but you're really not supposed to. And apparently it's mentally ill to do so. That's what every, that's what everyone keeps telling me. Um, but, you know, characters are complex and they may sometimes do things that are harmful for reasons that are complicated and do things that are good for reasons that are not as good. In <clears throat> Atlas Shrugged, there's just the divide between strong people who are able to take responsibility for their own actions and they are not um, deterred by setbacks or by obstacles. They just want something and they do it. And uh, they are confident in their own abilities. They're confident in themselves. And then everyone else, basically the majority of the world at this point, is overrun with weaklings, with people who are like, they couch their weakness in purported goodness they claim that they're concerned with the greater good but what they're really concerned with is this insecurity and fear that they have and this idea that anyone who is just better must be doing something wrong or must be playing unfairly this i mean you can hear this fucking psychosis in this but so the characters are Harry Re uh, Dagny Taggart is the railway maven. I don't know why he's called her that. Um, and then we are also tracking Harry Reardon, who is a steel magnate. He makes steel 
And he, again, is surrounded by weaklings and people who want him to just do what's easy and stuff. But instead, he's been creating this super light, super hot, sexy form of steel that is so much lighter and better than, like, Chinese steel. Uh, Am I combining the real world? Am I combining, like, Hillary Clinton being like, Trump built his tower with Chinese steel? But basically... It's 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 cheaper and lighter and more durable. It's better in every way than like regular steel or metal, this new metal that he's working on. And, you know, he doesn't know it, but that new metal is going to sweep across the country in the late 90s and contribute to the tragedy of Woodstock 99. Um, and so everyone's like he develops the metal and he and Dagny find each other because they, I don't know, they're kind of like, at, at, literally at one point, one of them shows up at the other's house and is like, hey, I heard you were one of the strong ones. Now, as this is going on, um, all of the most uh, rich and wealthy, like, jo- job creators of the world have been disappearing. It seems like something might be like, you know, doing them in. And Dagny and Harry even discuss, like, Aren't you worried about keeping a low profile? It seems like anyone who doesn't conform these days gets disappeared. But he's like, no, I want to make my metal. So the two of them start to build, uh, they start to revamp Dagny's railway lines by replacing the metal with Reardon metal. And everyone tells them it's going to fail. Everyone tells them they're going to get blamed. And everyone tells them that it's going to blow up in their face and that their, their narcissism and their need to feel like they're better than people is causing them to overreach and that they're going to harm everyone by trying to just like show off for themselves. But that's not what happens. The metal is a success. The train goes off without a hitch. They have this first successful ride and it kind of re it, you know, it throws almost the entire industrial sector into into chaos because now there's this new metal that is so fucking powerful and cheap. And by the way, Dagny and Harry start having an affair. There's other characters floating around. I'm just for this detailing the main thread storyline. We'll get into some of the other characters. <laughs> um, but uh, basically, the world that is overrun with collectivists with these weak people the government has become infected with them and in fact Dagny's sister has become like one of the friends of this like government lobbyist who is uh what's the word for when you love money and you have no moral scruples can't work on Saturdays um you know he's like a collectivist and he's got a big nose and he's like going he's going to like make the uh, world fairer and so he starts getting in the president's ear and having all these laws passed in the name of like corporate fairness and they start to basically destroy the economy of the country because in the name of fairness all advancement all innovation is being quashed oh rolling my fucking eyes they even take the Reardon medal away from Reardon. They take away his patent. They say, you're not allowed to be the only person making this. It's unfair. The entire sector needs to be allowed to compete. So everyone gets to make your medal now. And he's like, that's fucking insane. And he too finally disappears. Now Dagny is like, where the fuck did this guy go? She goes on this long journey to like, a, you know, intrigue and discovery. She chases an airplane through the mountains and she discovers this grotto 
where all of the wealthy job, like all the job creator, all the special people, all the innovators have all retreated from society, a society that no longer wants or supports them. And they have decided that it's not worth fighting you know, that we can make life beautiful for ourselves and we can ensure that we're all strong and we're all here. It's like, I don't know, almost eugenics. Like the the strong people remove themselves to make a super strong society in this like little unknown, unmapped grotto in this mountain range in like the Appalachians or some shit. And from this perch, the innovators watch the world collapse the president continues making these laws that continue to degrade the fabric of the country and eventually there are various shortages and the infrastructure collapses and just like everything is in tatters. And at the end of the novel, the innovators kind of look upon the ashes of society and go like, okay, it's time to rebuild it in our own image. So that is the plot. Like that's, that is what happens in Atlas Shrugged. Um, I think I, I just oh my just oh oh my oh me oh my uh, it it is a very political novel and it does beat you over the head with like you know what I've said about these ideas of of uh, of of um, blame and uh, authority and you know the very first scene of the novel is Dagny's on one of her own trains and it breaks down and she goes to the guy. And like the conductor or whatever. And he's like, I'm just waiting for a signal. I'm not doing anything. I don't want to get in trouble. I'm not doing anything. And she's like, well, you should, you need to do this, this, and this. I own this train line. And he's like, well, would you take responsibility for it? Because I'm not doing anything. I don't want to get in trouble. And like everyone along the way, every worker who she has to talk to, all these fucking drones, they keep saying, I don't want to get in trouble. I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything without the go ahead. Are you going to take responsibility? Are you going to be the one who takes the blame if someone gets in trouble, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't care. It doesn't matter to them if the train gets moving again. It doesn't matter to them if everyone is safe. It only matters that their ass is covered. Ass covering is like a huge thing in this story. Now, um, so now that we've got our skeleton, let me tell you about some of the characters who we might not have had time to get to know. So there's Dagny. She is the beautiful and uh, brilliant leader of the CEO of this train line, Taggart Railways or some shit. She, I, I, My mother, when I told my mother I was reading Atlas Shrugged, she had the best line about Atlas Shrugged. She was like, oh, a smart, uh, assertive woman who has three gorgeous men chasing after her that's how you know it's fiction um so good burn on atlas shrugged mom uh it is true that this novel uh i don't know i feel like it's a little toxic and i'm a little worried about like pretending that maybe accusing ayn rand of being a mary sue (laughs) i'm sorry but she is like the 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 lead character in this novel is like a beautiful brilliant woman who every strong man is just like drawn to her and they even it's even one of these novels where like the men have these conversations with each other where they're like you're better than me you should be with her i'm not good enough i don't deserve her and you do so i'm going to back down like there are these male characters one of them being of course harry reardon um 
Harry Reardon starts out the novel with a wife, but he divorces her after she refuses to wear his medal. Uh, that's, I'm joking, sort of. But uh, their marriage is kind of uh, in, in am I, I'm sorry if I'm being super loud. My, my voice, well, I don't know. I'm sorry, whatever. I apologize. God, I'm sorry. Um, but I've already kind of gone through these characters. I'm going to talk about them a little more. But I wanted to get to a few of the... Uh, the more side sidelined characters who nevertheless are really important. First of all, um, Atlas Shrugged, you think of it as like a political novel. And when you look at it, you're like, dunk. You're like, oh my God, this seems like it's some sort of like faux philosophical tome filled with like jargon and like, com you know, uh, yeah, huffy, harumphy, philosophical bullshit. And there is a lot of this in there, but it's so simplistic and it's so made up it's so in this world of like doers and donters that it's really easy to just eat eat it all up it's not like hard it's not like real philosophy and then the rest of the book is kind of like an airplane novel like that is the biggest thing that it reminds me of when i read atlas shrugged it reminds you of michael crichton it reminds you of you know clancy or or whatever it is his name is uh cooper and stuff the guys who you read in the fucking airport um there is a lot of like snappy dialogue and and like and drama. And again, as I mentioned, there is an airplane chase in this novel. Um, there are there is, and this is what I was getting at. There's a pirate in this novel. Um, a pirate named <clears throat> you'll have to forgive me. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. Ragnar Donaskajold, who is he's like a Robin Hood. He sails the seas on a big boat, destroying, like, the industrial work of the weak and protecting the strong. And he is in love with Dagny, I believe. There's also Francisco d'Anconia, who is uh, a business a businessman who uh, has become disillusioned with the way that businessmen cut up the world and no one competes anymore. And so he's taken to like luring businessmen into deals that he knows are going to go bad just so that the two of them lose a bunch of money. He is a friend of Dagny's from childhood. And so he is um, in love with Dagny as well, but she's he's not good enough for her. And then there's some guy named Ed, I believe. Eddie, Eddie something. And he's uh, just like her, like almost secretary. Like he's her assistant. And... He's in, deeply in love with her. A lot of the novel is kind of filtered through his vision. Um, but he also is not good enough for her. The only one who's good enough for her is Harry Reardon. And guys, they have a fucking sub-dom thing going on. I am not exaggerating this. Um, the, the, I'll tell you the story of the metal. Because that's super fucking weird and sexual. So, the... <laughs> The metal, he, okay, it's the first pour of his new metal. Harry's new metal, the Reardon metal, gets poured. And he brings it home on a bracelet to his wife. And he's like, here you go, honey. It's the first pour of my new metal. You know, this is what I've been spending my life on for like four years or whatever. And she's like, this is so ugly. You want me to wear like a big clunky piece of your gray metal? I guess that shows... I guess that shows that you're so selfish. You you are so narcissistic. You just want me to walk around with a big totem to you on my arm. And so she's at a party. She and Dagny are at a party. And Dagny overhears her talking shit about the metal. 
and being like, look at what he did. He made me, he got me this stupid thing. He thinks it's like selfless of him. But what a, what a goof my husband is. And she walks up to her and is like, if you don't want that bracelet, may I wear it? And in front of this entire party and in front of Harry Reardon, she like takes the bracelet off the wife's arm and puts it on her own arm. <coughs> Not happy about it. Later on, the two of them have sex and then she like makes him eggs and like kneels next to him. She's like, I want, I mean like there's, I don't even want to describe this scene, but she's like, I want you to do stuff with me. Like I want you to beat me and, and make me your little, you know, girl or whatever. I, none of that is real, but like, she is like, I want you to tell me what to do and own me. There we go. That's what it is. I want you to take control of me. You're, you're, uh, you're, you're my, you're my guy. Um, and there's not a ton of sex in the book, but like when they do have sex, it is fucked up. Um, and I don't, you know, it's maybe not fucked up by the metrics of your regular, you know, disillusioned 20 something year old in 2021, but like for sex in a book, like this is super weird for a non-erotic book that they're doing this, like, I'm yours. I belong to you. I'll kneel before you as I serve my man. Um, but it's unclear how that fits into her philosophy. Like she's got this philosophy objectivism, right? And this book is supposed to be like a metric, a metric. This book is supposed to be like a vehicle for objectivism. But where does it fit into objectivism? Like women wear collars and, you know, like, I, I, I just, whatever. I don't see it. I've read of, you know, I read the Fountainhead too. And there's more of this in the Fountainhead. There's more fucking weird sub dom sex in the fountainhead that also doesn't make any sense with objectivism fine that's fine with me um what do else do we need to get to um oh okay all right um so let's yeah this will this maybe this will be a short one or maybe what i'm about to say is going to take a year and a half um so as i've said a few times this is like an airport novel it has uh, action scenes. There is an airplane chase. There is there there are villains like the president. Uh, the president is kind of an unwitting villain, and the president. This is actually, I will say, one of the more striking things I've read. I, I don't know. Am I giving this too much credit? The president is described as having no face. Like he you can you like you look away from him and you forget what he looks like and you look back at a group of three white men and you're like which one of them is a president i don't even know he his face is described as looking different when he's around different people so this is like and again i think an artfully done if evil idea that his collectivist nature his weakness is so strong and that and it is a testament to the flaw in our like the sickness in our country that the most powerful man in the world in this world has no face and has no identity he has no beliefs when he's standing next to a guy who looks mad his face looks mad you know like that's kind of cool but so basically these uh you know these these uh, un these unspecified big-nosed manipulators get in his ear and they are not just sort of divvying up the spoils of the world 
But as though things are getting scarier, I believe they're investing in sort of like defense, crowd control or whatever. So there is, I should mention, a doomsday machine uh, in Atlas Shrugged. There's a scene where an evil mad scientist takes a bunch of people out and they stand on like they sit on some bleachers out in the desert and he blows up a house with a ray gun um the doomsday machine is not ultimately brought to fruition i will uh, admit that that um as an airplane novel like you know it's kind of Chekhov's doomsday machine you don't fire a gun at a house if you're not going to fire it at the moon or some shit but the, oh my god, the climax of Atlas Shrugged is actually so fucking insane. Uh, wow, I, I feel like I'm a like, teenager today. It's actually so fucking insane. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but so again, like Dagny has to chase this guy through the mountains on an airplane where they finally kind of like crash land into this grotto. And in the meantime, so let's talk about John Galt. Uh, John Galt is, and uh, look, I don't mean the hard-partying Swedish band known for such hits as uh, parentheses, meet me in, close parentheses, Australia. (laughs) I mean the fictional character from Atlas Shrugged who is name-checked over and over again in the form of this phrase, who is John Galt? Over the course of the novel, it seems to have become uh, part of the lexicon that who is John Galt is basically like, what am I, an asshole? (laughs) Like, Like... when you ask a stupid question, I don't, they people, instead of being like, I don't fucking know, they go, hey, who is John Galt? Am I right? You know, like, it's one of those questions that has no answer. No one knows who John Galt is. But that phrase seems to have permeated the lexicon. Dagny's hearing it everywhere. And she starts to become obsessed with the idea that John Galt is like the key to all of this. So eventually she discovers who John Galt is. John Galt is this guy who like, and I should say this already, that the the strong people in Atlas Shrugged, they're like demigods. Things don't, you know, and this is what is so frustrating about objectivism, is that it presupposes the idea that everyone starts out from the same point and everyone has exactly the same factors working for or against them. You know, you can be the strongest person in the world and something can really mess up your, your uh, progression. Um, but in the world of Atlas Shrugged, you know, these people walk through setbacks like a fucking serial killer walking through a thin door. Um, a thin door. Uh, and John Galt is kind of the ultra demigod. He's the original, he's like the god of this entire universe. There was a factory, this becomes like the lore, this becomes the mythology that they uncover throughout the novel. And you actually get to see this scene. It's one of the big points of the novel. There's this factory that is going to institute these, like, fairness-based policies that are actually super bad. And John Galt gives a 100-page speech. I am not exaggerating that. He gives a speech that is the length of a short book. Um, The implication here is that his speech is heard by everyone on the factory floor, like hundreds of workers. I should say, I've been listening to audiobooks. A hundred pages is like five hours. It's like it's like a lot of, of time. Maybe four? That's a lot of speech for people to stand through, to sit through, to not go to the bathroom, 
And he gives this speech about objectivism. This is towards the end of the novel that you hear the speech. It's literally like pages 800 to 900. He gives the speech about objectivism and he convinces literally everyone on the factory floor to his side. Isn't that just them being weak-willed? Whatever. All right. I don't mean to I don't mean to just be joshing you guys, but um you know, if these people are all so weak, they're like, "Okay, the fairness doctrine is good." And then you are like, hey, fairness is bad, selfishness is good. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Maybe they're just like easily cowed people. In your world, I mean, in this world, most people are like sheep. They're literally sheeple. They need to wake up. Um, But so John Galt convinces everyone on the factory floor to walk off with him. And this is sort of the this legend, the legend of this entire factory that all quit one day. John Galt is like this folk hero. He's Johnny, he's John Galt Appleseed. And he is like this symbol of hope that needs to be destroyed. So at the end of the novel, the final, like the climax of the novel, rather than a doomsday machine or a big action sequence, they get John Galt's clothes off. They kidnap John Galt or they they get him. The evil forces get him. The president's friends, the evil doctor, our intrepid lobbyists, they get his clothes off and they put him on a table and they torture him with electricity and they torture him and torture him and torture him. And eventually he is so strong that his beauty breaks all of them. Is that clear what I'm saying? John Galt refuses to break. He refuses to say I don't know, whatever the version of 2 plus 2 equals 5 is for this book. He refuses to say, hang on, uh, it's great that my metal, oh, it's not, he's not the metal guy. He refuses to say, everyone deserves Reardon metal. He refuses to say, some people are, no, no, no one's smarter than anyone else. Well, that's, that's what he, yeah, that's what he refuses to say. He refuses to say, we're all equal because some people just are better. That's what this thousand page book taught me. Um, and his integrity, like, even though he's the one being electrocuted, the watchers, the inflictors of his pain, the tormentors, they grow increasingly humiliated and uncomfortable with their own behavior. And they like get worn out and freaked out and they just give up and they walk away and they leave him on the table and he gets up, puts on his clothes and apple seeds his way off. I don't even remember where he goes. That is the climax of the book. Um, of course, the end of the book, and I wanted to talk to you guys about this. Um, what order do I want to do this in? Because here's the thing about Atlas Shrugged. is When I read it, I actually really liked a lot of the objectivism stuff only as a personal mantra. Not to apply to the world or to politics but rather to my own estimation of myself. Because who wouldn't love to be one of these strong-willed people who just walks through everyone and accomplishes what they set out to do? So what I tried to do, and this was for months after reading it, is I would say to myself, if if I said to myself, oh, I want to do this, but there's obstacles in my way, I would say to myself, well, you know, there's obstacles in your way no matter what. If you stopped doing everything that there were obstacles in your way, it's time, you know, you got to just do it. You got to just do it. And... I think that's a decent message if applied 
a little tight. If applied, if applied gently, I think it's a decent message for an individual turn to, to internalize about their own personal behavior. I don't think it has any bearing on the world because it's made up. Because again, the idea that this can be a rubric for interpersonal relationships takes out of account the idea that everyone is always at a different place and that people are are different, you know? It literally just acts like everyone is a, a drone who is exactly the same. Um, but I will say, for shit like, I don't know, I mean, you know what, that's funny, because I was about to bring up Jordan Peterson. Like, that. That's that's what it reminded me of, what I was about to say, is like, you know, what is the cost of cleaning your room? Should... Should people have to read Atlas Shrugged just to internalize the message, hey, be a little more assertive in your life, you know? I'm sure there's, I'm sure I could have gotten that without reading this thousand-page tome and having this shit drilled into my head over and over again, Ragnar, Danis, Gajold, etc. Um, but if there is value in Atlas Shrugged, I would say that is it. It's also a, wa- a wacky, uh, fun ride. It's uh, definitely, I don't know if the word is worth reading. It's definitely better than a fountainhead. Um, yeah, it's worth reading. If you like reading, it's worth reading. Give yourself a month and read Atlas Shrugged. It's going to be infuriating. It's going to be infuriating. But that's like, isn't that what's fun about books? Isn't that what's fun about content? Don't, don't we, per, you know, people are like, oh, you only do X to make yourself mad. Well, a reaction is a reaction, guys. A reaction over here is a reaction. <laughs> you know, some of the best art is stuff that just makes you react to it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like what I said. Yeah, it's, I love Atlas Shrugged for the same reason I love Joe Breezy Patron Chug. But um, before we get out of here, let me just tell you a little bit about the end of Atlas Shrugged and a little bit about what it, why it portends such a scary thing for our world. Because when you, and I, I, I this, this is a little bit of the previous generation of conservatives grew up on Atlas Shrugged. You know, I, I think like, the current generation of conservatives grew up on like snuff films and whatever. And like, oh man, that joke only works if I've got two snuff films and what Kalini fuck. Okay. What did this generation of Republicans grow up on snuff films and monster energy drink? What am I? 40? Well, I'm 30. <laughs> oh, I'm 31. I'm 31 tomorrow. I'm, I'm on Sunday the 26th. Everyone wish me a very happy birthday. Uh, uh, this is. I think this will be the good one. <laughs> but um, okay, so the end of the book. And again, conservatives of a different of a different generation before they grew fucking fangs. They uh, well, they always you know their fangs were just on the inside. Um, this was a big book for conservatives. And I always thought, oh, it must be a book where all these good people triumph over the bad people and like save the world. But as I mentioned, they don't save the world. They withdraw from the world and they allow the world to destroy itself. The final like message of the book is not, look, we saved it. It's like, look, you were wrong. We were right. It is more about being right than about doing good. And that is, you know, this idea of withdrawing from society because you're like mad about, excuse me, mad about whatever law or whatever. I mean, first of all, you know, the book makes no sense because it underestimates wildly 
the uh, power that corporations and lobbyists have to remake laws in their own image. I mean, like, it's that is kind of what's interesting about the book is that, like, it's almost an inverted version of what's actually happening. Like, there are people delving this, you know, dividing this country up between themselves, ensuring that they don't have to really compete, ensuring that for five generations, no one in their family is ever going to actually have to do a day of real work. And those people are the, the not, not the right, but those people are the rich, the, the job creators, the people, the CEOs. Those are the people who have made the playing field a certain way. There, this idea that these like dirty, uh, unwashed hordes clamoring for an equality that they don't deserve are, you know, um, unjustly trying to unravel a system that is truly fair. It's just, it's just fucking delusional. And, you know, I don't know what it's like, you know, this book was written, what, in the 50s, and Ayn Rand came from Russia in the 20s or something, so this is not to say that any of her beliefs are correct, but her beliefs are informed by experiences and knowledge that I do not have access to necessarily. Um, she herself is clearly a very strong person. She wrote these, you know, massive, massive tomes. She legitimized herself as uh, like a not just an author, but a thinker in the middle part of the last century as a woman. And all of that is very commendable. It's a shame. It's a shame. It's a real shame that she wrote this crazy book about how it's not good to share <laughs> about how if you've got two mozzarella sticks and your brother's got none. Looks like your brother's shit out of luck. Oh man, I read an Ayn Rand. Look, I've read a lot of Ayn Rand. Don't 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 be suspicious of me. I read a book of Ayn Rand essays called "The Virtue of Selfishness." Oh, she's so funny. Um, let me think. What do I? How do I want to close this out, guys? How do I want to end uh, our our uh, our chugging train of? Oh my God! Did you you know what bums me out so much? They made an Atlas Shrugged movie and it really did bad. And then they made a sequel and that did even worse. And they didn't make the third one. Atlas Shrugged, they were going to tell it in three parts, but they didn't. I don't think they finished it. Did they? Did they? Hang on. No, I'm not going to look something up. I'm not going to look something up at the end of the pod. Hey. Um... What, what could, what, how could you do Atlas Shrugged nowadays? It would have to be some sort of fantasy property. Yeah, you could do it. You'd have to make Dagny like 10 years. You'd have to make Dagny and Harry teenagers and you'd have to take out the Dom sub relationship. And then they're like saving the world. And the how is there magic? No, it can't be magic because one thing that this book is. As amazing as it is, a book with a doomsday machine, a torture scene, an airplane chase, a pirate who's like Robin Hood, one thing this book hates is fun. It's really not a fun book. Um, but I do think that Camilla Cabello is going to be great as Dagny. Uh, all right, great. That's my punchline for this episode. <laughs> I'm amazed with myself for knowing that name. Uh, all right. Happy birthday to me. Take care of yourselves. Uh, yeah. Enjoy. Bye.